Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Uh, did anybody get stirred up this week? About anything? I just... I, apparently we're all um, fans of uh, Auburn University because there's a lot of orange and blue in the room, I just note. And just, just kidding, joking, joking, joking. Um, there's a thing about being stirred up. Is that every, ever so often, like if you get the abomination that is unsweet tea and you put sugar in there... Um, and, and then you stir it, right, and it settles, and you have to stir it, and you have to stir it. Right. This, this is a little bit like where we are today. Uh, because Jesus is going to repeat some things in chapter 8 that he's already said in chapter 7. Here's why. Pastors, preachers, teachers, they have the, the inclination to repeat themselves. I think that mostly has to do with their hearers, but I'm just noting... That they have the inclination uh, to repeat themselves. Um, and and the, re the reason why I'm saying this is because Jesus has already said what he's going to say in John chapter 7. He repeats it in John chapter 8. And the reason why I think that's important to note is because it is just driving the point home of, of the reason John wrote the gospel at all. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes and he says, I'm writing this to you. Here's why. I want you to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And by believing, you would have life in his name. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. And by believing that he is, is the Christ, the Messiah, the appointed one to come and rescue God's people. By believing those things, we would have life in his name. He's already said this in John chapter 7. By the way, he said it in John chapter 5. He pointed it out in John chapter 4. He noted it in John chapter 3. We could keep going all the way back. This is the idea, though. John is driving this point home over and over and over and over and over again. I think it's uniquely important for us because some of us are in relationships with people who did not grow up around church. If that's true of you, raise your hand. You're in relationship, you know somebody who did not grow up around church. Raise your hand real high. Yeah. Their question, or the thing that we can point out that John helps us with, is that Jesus is God. He is not a God among the pantheon of gods. Um, he is God, uniquely God. Jesus is God. Some of us are in relationship with people who did grow up around church. Anybody in a relationship with somebody who did grow up around church? Yes. <clears throat> The, the, the thing that John drives at here is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the unique Savior. He is not somebody who is uh, just on the scene saying religious things, but he is uniquely the Son of God, uniquely the Messiah, uniquely giving us the opportunity to be made right with God, to experience deliverance and the salvation that God brings. So if we grew up around religious folks or have religious folks in our life, Jesus is the Messiah. If we have people who, uh, this is not part of their story. We, we pointed that Jesus is not a God. He is God. So that's where we start today. John uh, chapter 8, verse 12. And again, the context of this is this Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And we'll talk more about why that's important in just a second. Uh, this, these first few verses here, Jesus is repeating something he's already said. Let's go ahead and read it anyway because it's important. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
Jesus answered, well, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from, where I'm going. You don't know where I come from or where I'm going. I know what I'm talking about. Y'all have no clue. That's what he said. Uh, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. The Father who sent me bears witness about me. Uh, they said to him, uh, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus starts and he's saying, I am the light of the world. Why is this important? Because, again, John's using this particular section of Jesus' uh, interaction uh, with, with the uh, Pharisees here to drive home one of his two points, that Jesus is God, that we would believe that Jesus is God. In doing so, um, he is, Jesus is kind of dragging all of this powerful, powerful imagery uh, from the Old Testament forward into this moment. So, uh, if you've been around church, this, uh, you can help me a little bit. Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Um, uh, in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And probably most famously, um, when God rescued his people out of Egypt, delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, brought them out into the wilderness. During the day, no big deal. Had a big cloud hanging out. But at nighttime, what happened? That cloud became a pillar of fire, which was a source of light, right? So <clears throat> here the presence of God uh, is, is a, a, uh, a way to lead them, but also a way to protect them. And so you've got this pillar of fire. So Jesus is pulling all of this imagery out, and then he's contextualizing it into this specific moment, because at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things that would happen, at the, the very last, uh, in the last little section, they would light these four huge lamps in the courtyard of the uh, of the temple area. Huge. Huge. And I'm going to quote more here. Uh, men of piety, it, it, like when they lit those lamps, men of piety then danced through the night holding burning torches, torches in their hands and singing praises. So, four huge lamps. Lots of people dancing around with torches. I mean, like if you're outside, I mean, the t that's on the temple grounds at the top of the top of the top in Jerusalem. And if you're outside of that or outside of the city and you look up and you've got four huge lamps and all this light emanating, you might think, that's a city set on a hill. Like maybe indeed that is very much the light of the world. Jesus looks at that and he brings forth all this imagery to say, hey, all that stuff, guess where it's all pointing? That's what he's doing. He's saying he's God. He's pulling this imagery forward. To remind us, and John's using this particular expression of Jesus right here to remind us, Jesus is God. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the second part is in verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you'll seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. I need to put a little pause, pastoral pause here, and a little parenthesis for just a second here. 
Uh, some people think, uh, depending upon kind of their religious tradition and that kind of thing, that if um, someone is consumed by the darkness and ultimately takes their own life, that therefore uh, they uh, are, were not a Christian or um, will not be with God forever. And, here's, and they draw it from places just like this. But when you read the Bible, just be really careful about who's speaking here. Because it's the Jews who said this. And in this particular story, are they the good guys or the bad guys? They're the guys who don't know what they're talking about. So let's be careful about drawing theology from people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, here's the pastoral parentheses here. Um, the, the scripture is very, very clear that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. How, how much can separate us from the love of God? How much? Nothing. Some people, good, honest followers of Jesus, the darkness gets them and the enemy overwhelms them and they make choices that we wish that they wouldn't. And even that choice right there does not separate them from the love of God. Well, that would never happen to a true believer. Uh, anybody heard of Elijah the prophet? That brother had a monster win. I mean like Altuve at the plate in the ninth inning win. You knew I was going to slip, so you liked it. Huge, huge up on Mount Carmel. Fire falls, consumes everything. He's like, awesome! Rain finally hits Israel. Yes! Oh, they're coming after you. They're going to kill you. I'm out. See you. Peace. Goes out into the wilderness, lays down under a terebinth tree. Is like, you know what, Lord? I, I did my part. I'm done. Just take me now. How deep was the darkness for him? Moses. God, I'm tired of putting up with these people. I know you're tired of putting up with these people. Can you just, right now, just, can we just be done? Sometimes the darkness gets really, really great. Sometimes it can consume a person. But that darkness does not separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Be careful where you draw your theology from, okay? That, that's, that's the pastoral parentheses, parentheses over. All right. He said it in verse 30, uh, 23. Uh, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. So he said to him, well, who are you? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have so much to say about you. I love that. Jesus is like, I'm talking about you here. I'm not talking to you anymore. And much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority and speak just as the Father has taught me. And, <clears throat> and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So we talked about believing that Jesus is God. Second part, believing Jesus, um, believing Jesus is the Messiah. He has said almost this exact same thing in John chapter 7. Where I'm going, you can't come. And they're like, what? what are you going to do then? What's the plan? Where is he going? He's going to the cross. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's going to the cross. There to pay for sins. Sins that we could never pay for. Sins that the Pharisees could never pay for with their sacrificial system. Sins that their self-righteousness would never actually deal with and atone for. He's going to the cross to die for their sins. He went to the cross to die for our sins. Secondly, he's going to the tomb because the weight of that punishment will ultimately kill him. 
He's going to the tomb because not only is he going to defeat sin, but he's also going to defeat death. Death really was arrested when Jesus went to the tomb and ultimately rose again victoriously. And thirdly, he's going to the Father. He is going to be with him. He will ascend to the right. That's why I got so fired up during the creed a while ago. He is ascending to the right hand of the Father who one day, one day, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for us even right now. And at one point, there's going to be a point where the Father turns to the Son and says, okay, it's wedding day. Let's go. And whatever that looks like, Jesus is going to split the eastern skies and we will be with him forever. This is what Jesus, this is where he's going. It's why we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're here today, if you watch that line today, I just want you to know you will never have better news than that the God of the universe has sent his son to die for our sin, to rise again, to give us a whole new kind of life that is guaranteed to last forever and ever and ever with him. You won't get a better offer than that. You just won't. It's why many, in verse 30, why many believe him. And some of you are at that place. You're like, yeah, I'm down. I believe Jesus is God, and I believe he's the Messiah. So the question then, and this is where I want to just spend the bulk of the sermon here. The question is, what do I do? Like, since I believe, like I do believe, what do I do now? Like, what is it that I'm supposed to do? Um, now that you believe, what? What? I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 31. Verse 30, they believed. So Jesus said to the, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Now just pause right there. Again, be careful about who's talking here. Um, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Well, yes, they have, because they were in Egypt. And secondly, they're living in first century Roman Empire. They're literally under the thumb of Rome right now. They've missed it on two fronts. Just be careful when you read. You've got to be careful who's talking. So, Jesus said, if, if you abide in my word, abide, abide in my word. What, that, that word, abide, means to dwell, to kind of, uh, one of the ways it's, it's uh, used in the New Testament, to spend the night in, something like um, to sit down in or to stay. How many of you at 703 know exactly where you're going to be sitting? I mean, literally, you know. Like you have already settled into the chair or that spot on the couch. You know which pillow you're going to be propped up on or whatever it is. Right? Like you know. Because you have in your mind. Like you've, you've been there. You've gotten there. You're sitting down in that moment on the inside like you're there. This is what it means. To, to be so connected to, to the scriptures, to, to the, the word that Jesus has given us. That we just sit down in it. And we're ready for it. This is what he's talking about here. To, to remain. To, to stay. To have, and this is probably my favorite phrase for it. To have an unhurried presence. To have an unhurried presence. So church family, just real practically, before we start talking about like, how that expresses itself. To have an unhurried presence. When God speaks to us through his word. It means What? We gotta have a plan. I want to have a plan to read the scriptures, and then um, we have typically to have a place where we meet God through the scriptures. A plan and place. All right. So now that we believed, what do we do? We abide in our. What would that look like? Again, I'm glad you asked. 
I, I'm going to just uh, pull some of these verses together that use this word to try to paint the picture for it. In chapter 5, uh, verse 38, here's what it says. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe whom he has sent. The very first thing that it means to abide in God's word is to believe. Well, you just said believe. Like, I've already believed. Why are you asking me to believe again? Because it, uh, this is where we start. Belief is not a one-time commitment. It is a lifetime of expression of our affirmation that God is who He says He is and He's done what He said He's done. The affections that get stirred up from those truths and the actions that follow. Belief is not a one-time commitment. I'm on the starting block. Okay, boom. Gun goes off. I'm out of the starting block. Faith is not the point of entry into the Christian life. It is the entire race of the Christian life. That's what we're talking about here. So, fundamental to our relationship with God is this kind of ongoing recognition of who He is, of what He's done, um, and, and what He did, and what He is doing. So, uh, some people think that the good news of Jesus means we, we kind of start the race with the gospel and then we move on. But that's not the reality. The good news of Jesus is the gospel, the gospel is a well into which we dive over and over and over again. And the deeper we go, anybody scuba divers in here? A couple of you freak me out, but it's cool. I'm not. I think it's awesome. I'm glad for you that you do that. But you keep going down. You have to conform to the pressure. I mean, you can't just go up and down as you wish. You have to get... You, you have to conform to the pressure. So in the same way, we deep dive into the reality of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus. And the, the positive, if you will, pressure of that shapes us, forms us. Um, some people think it, it expresses itself. I hear this as a pastor sometimes. Some people think, oh yeah, I'm a Christian now, but now I'm ready to move on to deeper things. Typically what they mean by that, nothing, just by observation, typically what they mean by that is, number one, uh, they want some sort of code that unlocks the secrets of the Bible. Particularly, for whatever reason, the book of Revelation. Like, they always think deeper stuff is in the book of Revelation. I'm all for studying the book of Revelation. Like, I, I'm terrified to preach it, but I'm all for studying it, okay? There's not a secret code for it, by the way. Anybody who puts up a chart is like, this is how it's going to unfold. They're selling you a book is all they're doing. Listen... When people say, I, I want deeper things like that, and you're like, oh, I mean, it's good to study, it's good to learn, it's good to do all that kind of stuff, but that is not. That's kind of our more heady friends. Some of our more um, heart-oriented friends, our charismatic friends will say, oh, I just want more of the Spirit, and I'm going to go on to experiences in the Spirit. Listen, I'm all for experiences with the Holy Spirit. Had a few myself. But, but the, that's not the deeper things. Those are things that God gives us markers to say this is the way that we're walking. And all of it, all of it is centered in the gospel. So we believe and we keep believing and we work to continue to recognize who he is, what he said, what he did, and what he's doing. Belief. Secondly, um, I'm going to pull some from his first letter here in First uh, John. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Obey. So believe. What would it look like to abide in God's word? To uh, believe and to obey. Whoever keeps his commandments abides um, in God. Meaning what? That the bent of our lives is to do what he says is best. Always. 
That's just like the reflex of our lives is to do what he says is best. What if you and I become the kind of people that are so transformed that when God says, this is the way, we're like, yes, of course that's the way. This is what we're going to do. How does that happen? Well, number one, you spend time in the word to learn what is best. And then when you do the things that you see there, guess what? You learn that they really are best. How many of you taught yourself to ride a bike by reading a manual? Anybody? Taught a kid to ride a bike by reading a manual? No. I mean, like you had some basic instruction, right? Like, don't put your feet on the handles. Put your hands on the handles. Feet go on the pedals, right? And you've got to kind of keep your core centered over this. And you tell them this, although they do not believe you. When you turn, when you turn, and you're turning to the left, you, you have to lean right. I mean, I mean, you will try to lean right, and, and, but you can't. You've got to lean into the turn with it so that the bike, otherwise the bike will want to go straight. This is how the physics work. And your six-year-old is looking at you like, I don't know about physics. Well, just trust me. Lean into the turn. Don't lean away from it, okay? And, but sure enough, they get down there like, oh, look, I'm doing it. And then they go to turn, and what do they do? They turn, and then they lean the opposite way, and then what happens? I told you. But once they get it, they're like, oh, oh. Yes, it really is best to do this. That's us. We, we see in the scriptures, in the word, what he has said. And our heart is bent toward obedience. And, and, because we see what is best in the scriptures, we go do that kind of stuff. And then we're like, yeah, that's the best way right there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Th- thirdly, and it's, a, it's an older word, but I just... Loved it this week when I was studying. To believe, to obey, and then to estrange. What do you mean by that? Meaning that there are things in our lives that are important for us to set aside or set down in order to follow Jesus. First John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We refuse to tolerate sin in our lives. Paul says it this way. We make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. Um, And we do so without becoming the police for somebody else, because that is its own sin, right? Like if, if if I'm like, hey man, this is the way that I need to do this for my own sake because of my, back, my past or my family or the junk back there um, in my trailer that I haul around. Like whatever, this is the way that I need to do it. There may be some wisdom in it for you. But if I come at you and it's like, hey, this is the way that you have to do this if you're really going to follow Jesus and be a good Christian. That right there is its own sin. We do these kinds of things without becoming the spiritual police for others. We estrange ourselves. And some of you know exactly what this feels like. But because you know, hey, when I'm in this situation or around this person or uh, if I'm up too late or whatever it may be, it's just not spiritually healthy for me. Things come, opportunities come, stupidity comes, whatever it may be. I just grow a stupid horn, whatever it may be. Like you just think, oh, I'm dumb. I should not be up. Whatever it may be. You just know what this feels like. So you estrange yourself from those practices, from those environments, from those habits. If we don't, what Jesus said in John chapter 8 is true of us. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Sin enslaves us. Excuse me. Um, it, we, we make ourselves a, sin, a slave of sin and it enslaves us. But Jesus, he's offering freedom. And this can include, listen, this can include good things. 
that just need to be laid down or set down for a while. Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 12. Hey, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, so let's run the race that God has marked out for us. How do we do so? Yeah, I mean, we need to kick sin to the curb, the sin that entangles us. But also, sometimes there are weights that we carry around, burdens. We need to set those down so that we can run. Run in the way that God would want for us to run. There's a twofold challenge, I think, in our particular culture. Here's number one. I, I, challenge number one. Um, We have to be comfortable. I'm going to say it positively. We have to be comfortable with the foolishness of our obedience. Church family, listen. Uh, teenagers, listen. They're, like, hear this. I mean, God, leave with somebody who told me when I was 17. Like, there are things that God will consistently ask us to do that will look stupid to people. What do you mean I can't live this way? All my other people are doing it. I mean, it doesn't seem to be hurting anybody. There are things that God will ask us to do, and the foolishness of our obedience is a hurdle, I think, that we have to overcome. What we cannot imagine is that God would want us to look so ridiculous. But it's precisely those who are willing to do so that see God, and often see God move powerfully. Just get comfortable, church family, with the foolishness of obedience. Secondly, and this is probably uh, more acutely felt, I think, in our suburban context, is, and I didn't know how else to say it, that we have a participation trophy culture. Everybody's a winner. We even have entire leagues built around not keeping score. The coaches know what the score is. Think sure that the players know what the score. I mean, like you know what they. But no, oh, no, no, no. But we don't keep score. You should keep score. Like everybody. Everybody gets a medal at the end. Here's how I think spiritually that expresses itself. We, we want a medal. We want a trophy to be celebrated for something that was killing us anyway. Hey, you're not doing that thing that was really terrible for you. Good job. Or better. And I think this is, at the very least, we want somebody to feel sorry for us that I can't do what everybody else is doing. Look at me over here in my obedience, not doing what those other people are doing. Feel sorry for me. Come on, compassion. Every so often, maybe the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and goes, what do you want, a cookie? I mean, like, what do you want? Are you serious? We estrange ourselves from sin and, and the things that are not good for us because we want to do the things that he does. And that, that actually ties to the last part. In 1 John chapter 2, um, verse 6. <clears throat> not 2 Peter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Not just in obedience. We do obey what he says, but we also do what he did. Christianity is a way of life. It is a relationship with a living person that is shaping um, how we interact with that person and with the world around us. I'll just give you an example. I, I'm not sure, and, and maybe it's different for different relationships, but how many of you have been married long enough that you do stuff the way that your spouse does stuff now? I mean... 
Yep, 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 yep. Like you fold the socks in that right way or the T-shirts or you put the toilet paper backwards or forwards, whichever way is best for you or the towels or, or whatever. Or you phrase things, you think things, you whatever. Like there's just, because you're in this formative relationship, for those of you who are married, there are things that are true about you that were not true before the relationship. In the same way, we not only are committed to obey Jesus, avoid the things that are not good for us, but we walk with Him. And in doing so, we are formed into relationship with Him. Okay, last thing. Quick. Abide, abide in His Word. And then the second part of that, what do you do now that you believe? Abide, but also live free. Live free. Again, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And then again in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Let's pause right there. It is a freedom to live with assurance. The slave doesn't live forever in the house. The son, the daughter does. We are brought into God's family and we are brought in legally. When, when the Bible uses a big Bible word like justification... That is the legal declaration that you are made right with God. But not just legally brought into a family. It is why adoption is such a beautiful picture of this. There is a legal moment when a child is, is placed into a family. But there is also the relational embrace of that child. So you, you wrap your arms around. You, you, um, and you say, hey, you belong here. Now, for some of you... Um, depending upon your home situation, that, that's kind of a struggle. Or, or uh, uh, depending upon the house in which you grew up, maybe that's a thing where you kind of spend that up. But here, I just, for those of you with kids right now, um, whether they be biological or not, I just want you to think about this for a second. Can you imagine what would go on in your heart if your kid walked up to you and asked this question? It, not, not sarcastically, but legitimately. Oh, I get to eat tonight? You ate last night and the night before, and the night before. of course you're eating tonight. Or if they said to you, "Wait, there's a bed. I don't have to sleep on the floor." You'd be like, "What kind of bed do you want? I'll call Mattress Mac right now and be like, hey, you're gonna have it here in two hours, right?'" I mean, like, if that went on in your house, you would think. What is going on in that kid's life that would promote that kind of insecurity and prompt that kind of question? And some of us approach God like, oh, I get to actually have a bed? You're going to let me eat tonight? Church family, it does not honor God if we act as if He is stingy as we think He is. He is generous. He is ridiculously merciful and gracious to us. And He wants us to know that the slave doesn't live forever, but the son or daughter, guess what? They're kids. They live in the house forever. And our Father is so good that our insecurities can be dislodged by His goodness. And we can just be comfortable in the place that God has given us. Freedom to live with assurance. Secondly, it is a freedom that is genuinely free. Genuinely free. Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, or, or genuinely. 
there's a story in Mark chapter 5. Jesus uh, crosses the um, Sea of Galilee, ends up uh, uh, in the area of Gerizim, and there's a guy there who's not in a good spot. He's living in a cemetery. That's bad. Secondly, uh, when and he's, and he's like overwhelmed uh, with darkness. And so the townspeople come out and they try to chain him up and stuff, but the, the darkness is so powerful in him that he just breaks the chains apart. Here's a question. Did anybody in this room or in that story think that, hey man, that guy's got a real life. Like, that's awesome. No, you're dwelling among the dead. There's no life in that. Does anybody think, oh, look at that guy. He can break chains. He must be really free. That doesn't, none of that sounds like freedom. In fact, it wasn't until Jesus stepped on the scene, delivered him from the darkness, that the Bible says this. He's fine, they came back and they found him sitting, clothed in his, in, in his right mind. That was when the freedom came. Freedom that is genuinely free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What, what would that freedom look like? Not that fake freedom uh, that the culture offers. Hey, look, break your chains. Do whoever you want to be. Be whoever you want to be. You only live once. Go for it. It'd be great. That's not where the freedom is, folks. Free, freedom, genuine freedom, looks like this. It is freedom to want the right thing. There's, that's one expression of it. Freedom to want the right thing. Because our wanter is broken. And sometimes we want things that are not good for us. Sometimes we want to do what I want, even though it's not the right thing. So the freedom that Jesus brings is the freedom to want the right thing. Secondly, freedom to do the right thing when it's appropriate. I am not enslaved to my impulses. I am not enslaved to one more bite, one more drink, one more look, one more anything. I'm not controlled by my impulses. I am free to do the right thing and do so when appropriate. And lastly, I am free to live in His joy. I don't have to jump on the religious treadmill and try to produce something. I'm free to live in his joy. Jesus later, when he's talking about abiding, uses in the same word in John chapter 15. He says this in verse 11. I'm telling you this stuff, y'all. I'm telling you. So that my joy will be in you and your joy will like be brimmed. I mean like right to the top. Full. He invites us into joy. Some of us think... I don't want you to think this, but some of us do think, yeah, see, God gives boundaries and that kind of stuff so that we're, like, not free. But that's not how it goes. Sociologically, this has been proven across um, uh, continents, across decades, across generations. It's actually a landscaping study with sociological impact. You put a playground structure out in the middle of a field, the kids play within a very small orbit of that playground structure. You put a playground structure in the middle of the field and then fence the field, you know what happens? They go everywhere. They play on the playground structure. They go and play kickball over in the corner. They have a thing over here. They play tag and they're off everywhere. They are more free when there are fences in play. The joy is theirs when they recognize, oh, there's boundaries here. That's true for them. Guess who else is true for? us to, the boundaries that God sets for us, the things that He says are best, the Word in which He invites us to abide in order to experience this kind of freedom and joy, that Word is not for our uh, a restriction. It's for our salvation. It's for our preservation. And it's for our joy. The commandments that God gives are not burdensome. 
And it all starts with belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That He is God. He is who He says He has done what He says He's done. Doing what He says He will do. Believe. Believe that He is the Messiah coming to give freedom and joy to God's people. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, it's just we've settled here and asked for the next few moments that you would you would help this particular word of freedom settle down on each individual person here. Because it needs to express itself in ways that are individual. In ways that are appropriate to our unique weeks. And so Father, please um, personalize what's been said for all of our sakes. As much as we're excited about the events of whatever week is out there in front of us. Lord, you're inviting us to something powerful, intentional, eternal. You're inviting us to joy. So help us to revel in that. This is what we ask in Jesus.